everyone, welcome back to Adhered Apologetics. So glad you're joining us today. Today I'm joined again by Dr. Alan Rhoda. He's um, a philosopher, a writer, um, and he's also an open theist. So today we're going to be talking about answering objections to open theism with regards to things like perfect being theism, church tradition, predictive prophecy, um, all kinds of fun stuff. But Dr. Rhoda, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I am doing well, Zach. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, mm -hmm. to interact with you and, and with you and your viewers. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation, and we're going to jump into it pretty soon here on answering objections to open theism. We did have a part one where we kind of talked about framing like what open theism is, uh, the problem of like freedom and foreknowledge, and things along those lines. Um, so, Dr. Rhoda, I'll give it to you. Is there anything like kind of necessary in terms of like what open theism is, or important things that you want to bring that are important, kind of like drawing back to that last conversation before we get into some of these objections? Um, well, so the uh, I think so that the uh, the context for the objections, you know, is set. Uh, I think it'd probably be worthwhile just to briefly s restate what open theism is, and uh, and uh, so let me do that. Uh, uh, by open theism, um, I mean it, it's the view that God has decided to leave the future of His creation to some degree. Um, and that degree is, of course, up to God, uh, to some degree open-ended, uh, uh, to be shaped by the free decisions of his creatures. Uh, and, and then the open thesis would add, because the future is open-ended, you know, it is open-ended because that's the way God set it up, uh, then, then God, God also knows it as such. So, so uh, God does not have a detailed map of uh, you know, uh, kind of um, the unique actual type future uh, in mind. God has a general uh, objective for creation, a direction he wants things to go, and he is working to uh, to steer things in that direction. Uh, uh, but that there are specifics of uh, the future that are yet to be filled in. Uh, uh, because they're dependent upon what choices uh, we uh, make. Uh, an analogy, uh, and I'll, I'll stop with this so you can start posing objections, but, but uh, a simple analogy uh, that I've heard recently, uh, it's kind of like imagine that uh, all of creation is in like a cruise ship. Okay, you know, God's the one is the pilot. He's steering the ship. He knows where he wants it to go, right? And he's going to get us to our different ports and to the final destination. Uh, but on board the ship, there's lots of different actors, and they've got a certain freedom of movement, uh, and and they're able, you know, to, you know, do the different things that they want to do on a ship, under uh, within some constraints. But that's not going to change God's overall goal of getting us to his planned uh, destination. Hmm. So God's in overall control, but he doesn't have to micromanage all the details. He leaves hmm. some of those details up to us. 
Mm. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, so the first objection that we're going to look at is like the test of um, predictive prophecy. So some people may claim that like open theism um, will violate um, the idea of there being predictive prophecy. Um, you look at things maybe with like prophecies regarding like the person of Jesus um, or maybe like Peter's denial where it seems like in, like he's getting into the details of like Jesus in the Bible says, uh, the Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then later mm-hmm. on that he does. Um, so people wonder like if God doesn't have this foreknowledge, how can he make all these like predictive prophecies? Um, so how would you respond to that first objection? Yeah, that's that's uh, a common and and, uh, and and well a sensible objection. Uh, there's a lot to say about it, so I'm gonna uh, have to consult my notes here. So if I'm looking <laughs> down, that's that's why. Um, yeah. So um, in uh, uh, like. Uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, there's, you know, we're given uh, a, a test for a, a prophet. It says, you know, if a prophet predicts something that doesn't come to pass, then the prophet has spoken presumptuously, right? And, you know, is not speaking for God. Um, and, you know, this gives rise to, you know, kind of a natural objection against open theism. It says, well, if, if, if the details of the future, to the extent that they hinge upon creaturely free choices, are not, uh, uh, you know, aren't known to God simply because, well, there isn't a, a truth of the matter. The details are are still to be filled in. Um, then, uh, uh, couldn't many scriptural uh, of the prophecies in Scripture be thwarted by creaturely actions? You know, so God's, you know, predicts, you know, that such and such is going to happen. But, you know, because he didn't, you know, foresee all of the the, the detailed, uh, you know, consequences and stuff uh, that that somebody makes a free choice down the line that messes the whole plan up. You know, uh, that that would be would be worrisome, uh, I think. Um, so, you know, for example, you uh, you know, this might undermine our confidence in Scripture or even in Jesus himself, because, you know, there's lots of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah uh, uh, and that Jesus, as you mentioned, makes a specific prophecy concerning uh, the, the threefold denial of Peter. Uh, um, or, or we could also imagine, you know, could say uh, uh, like Mary or Joseph have messed up God's plan by simply uh, deciding to, you know, to not cooperate with, with the angel, uh, you know, uh, uh, like when Gabriel uh, spoke to them uh, uh, or, or could free actors such as Pilate or the members of the Sanhedrin uh, have thwarted the crucifixion, hmm. you know, uh, so yeah, we have a worry here that 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 uh, that open theists need to need to address head on. Um, there's a lot to say about this because there's a lot of different prophecies in Scripture, and they're not all of the same type, right? And and uh, we can't, of course, deal with every example. Um, uh, and to deal with any example. It would ultimately you'd have to do it on a case by case type of basis because you have to pay attention to the detailed context of the passage and stuff. But uh, 
the sake of time and because I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm a philosopher, I'm going to try to uh, split things up into uh, a number uh, of categories. And, uh, and so, uh, first, um, if there are matters that are already causally determined, uh, you know, for example, just, uh, you know, like when uh, a solar eclipse is going to happen, that's obviously a kind of thing that could be predicted in advance, right? Uh, mm -hmm. By a being who knows the, the causal laws of nature, you know, that, that God has established. Uh, so that wouldn't be a problem for open theism. Or if there are matters that God has unilaterally decided he's going to bring, a uh, bring to pass. You know, well, well, that's not dependent then on human free choices, right? God's going to do it. Uh, so God can, of course, predict that. Uh, we have uh, just to cite a verse on that. Uh, if you refer to Isaiah chapter 46 and then 48 uh, as well, uh, 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 I, I give God who says, you know, I am God. There is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done. Uh, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I've spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. So here we have God saying, I can declare the future from the past because I'm going to do these things. You know, he's the he's unilaterally acting on the world stage in some cases just to bring things about. So, again, not a problem for, for open theism when that's the case, because, of course, no human actors or no free will agents uh, uh, are playing a role other than God. Mm. Uh, a third case, uh, and this is probably, you know, uh, the case that we're, that's you know, uh, more problematic is going to involve, you know, well, how about when there are human or uh, or angelic actors of some sort involved. Uh, well, uh, first thing I would say about that is that a lot of the time, uh, the psychological orientation of the actors is sufficiently set by the time the prediction is made. Mm. that one can be certain how things are going to play out. Uh, let me give some examples, okay? Uh, first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 20 and 21. Uh, so here's a... Uh, uh, so it's God who's speaking. He says, When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I have sworn to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. So he's predicting that the Israelites are going to fall away, you know, uh, uh, you know, and then they will spurn me and break my covenant. Well, how does he know this? He says, for I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. So God is saying that, I know how this is going to play out, at least over the long run, because I know your hearts. I know where the hearts of the people of Israel are at, 
and they are not wholly committed to me, they're going to get dragged away over time. And, and this is, is going to happen. Uh, uh, I have no problem with seeing how God could predict that. You know, God designed our psychology. He knows us inside and out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Um, yeah, you know, that's the sort of thing. I would say something along the same lines, though in a more specific case, when it comes to Peter's denial. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so Jesus knew of Satan's plans to attack the apostles. In fact, he specifically prays uh, that, you know, that God protect them through this. But but he tells them that I know you know, Satan plans to sift you like wheat, right? Uh, so he knows a time of testing is going to come upon them. He also knows a little bit about Peter. Well, he knows a lot about Peter, but, but he knows specifically that Peter is insecure and Peter is boastfully overconfident, you know? Mm. So the Peter says, you know, I won't deny you, you know, at at which time, you know, you know, I have a stutter, so I can't always articulate. You good, don't worry about it. But at which point he's told, he's, told by Jesus that, nope, you know, you will deny me three times, in fact, uh, Mm -hmm. before the cock crows. Uh, And so how could Jesus have made this prediction? I don't think it's too surprising because I think all Jesus, you know, you know, I think, you know, he knew the stressful circumstances that Peter was going to be subjected to uh, in the wake of Jesus's arrest. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, He may have have had a role in maybe prompting specific people to challenge him, you know, you know, like, weren't you uh, with the Messiah too? You know, we saw you with him and stuff like that. Uh, but knowing his psychology, his fragile state of mind at the time, uh, it was, I think, very predictable that Peter was going to fold like a house of cards mm. under, under that kind of pressure. And then at the end of that, all, all God has to do is to poke a chicken uh, you know, it caused the caused the rooster to crow three times at the you know appropriate moment. Uh, so so due to you know with a combination of of God's intimate uh, knowledge of human psychology and uh, perhaps some subtle interventions in the system here to maybe uh, prompt some people to pose a challenge to Peter or you know to uh, to prompt a rooster to, to crow, uh, uh, he he can control the rest of the details. That's that's uh, my take on that. Uh, and just to expand on on this kind of thought in somewhat more general terms, uh, when we talk about the nature of free will, um, you know. Uh, for, for open theists, we hold to a libertarian view of free will. That, that, that means that when we are making free choices, uh, those choices are not determined by any prior causes, that the human agent is the, the decisive cause to uh, affect the choice. Um, but it's consistent with that to 
hold that we aren't nearly as free as we'd like to think we are. Mm. Uh, we are, in fact, I think, very largely creatures of habit. And very much of our behavior is, um, is a response to things going on subconsciously or subliminally that we have no direct control over. Mm. Uh, um, in an important article by, art, article by, article, uh, article by Peter Vanenwagen, who's, who's uh, one of the foremost defenders of a libertarian conception of free will, um, uh, he wrote an article a while back called When is the Will Free? And in that article, he argues for uh, what's come to be called a restrictivist view of libertarian freedom. Uh, and, and, and his contention is that most of the time, we are not free in the libertarian sense. Uh, that, that most of our time, you know, most of our choices, we kind of run on, on autopilot, as it were. Uh, you know, we're just being guided by our habits, by 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 how we're predisposed and circumstances influence in a certain way, and we just kind of go with the flow. Um, uh, and he argues there that that we're only truly free in the libertarian sense, and and uh, when we are consciously deliberating among multiple live options each of which is significant. In other words, not a trivial choice like what flavor of ice cream to have, but, mm -hmm. you know, which you could, you know, answer with just like a coin flip or, or you know, doing an eeny, meeny, miny, mo, which isn't really, you know, anyone's like paradigm of a free choice here. You know, you just need a randomizer in your brain to, to, to make those kind of decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, so you have... A, a, a number of live options that are incompatible, they're significant, and uh, in which uh, none of the options stands out to the agent as obviously correct. Uh, because of course, if, if one did seem obviously right to you, then well, that's the one you should make and to not make it would be f irrational and hence not a paradigm case of a free choice, right? Uh, so he says that these uh, 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 conditions aren't met that often. There are some cases like, you know, like when you're trying to decide, you know, like uh, what kind of career to pursue or, you know, uh, you know, what kind of person to marry or something like that, that where, where, where the choices are clearly momentous and, uh, and there may be no clear, clear answer what the best is. And in those type of cases, that's when the free agent has to establish a preferencing among options that, that isn't there to begin with. Right. And, and, and that's the kind of, you know, is the paradigm situation where free choice really plays a role and has to enter in. Uh, and his contention is, is that, you know, 94, Five percent of the things we do don't fit that uh, don't fit that model, mm. um, and and so you know uh, could plausibly be understood along compatibilist lines or you know something like that. 
so if he's right on that, and I think he is, then 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 the challenge of predicting human behavior isn't as uh, uh, as daunting as it might otherwise seem. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, so the the next objection then that we'll we'll look at oh. here is this idea of like, um, or do you have the UN ad? Mm -hmm. I I do have more to say about prophecy. So so it, it, yeah. would it be possible for me to say a few more points? Oh, for sure, go for it. We don't have to get through everything. So yeah, totally. Go ahead. Feel okay. free to I, I, I don't know how much time we have. Uh, we got. We have about like, like 40, 45 minutes, I would say. Okay. Um, okay. Well, mm -hmm. the uh, uh, the stuff on prophecy was was the longest part of stuff that I had prepared. So I think the rest okay. we should be able to get through a lot more quickly. All right. Yeah. Feel free to share what you need to do about prophecy because I think that's a, a good. A yeah. Good okay. So uh, I think a, a fourth point that that's worth making is, is that God can and sometimes does intervene to uh, channel or constrain human behavior. And there's many instances in scripture of this. Uh, uh, first of all, in Exodus, we have the cases where it says that God God, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, right? Hardened Pharaoh's heart, uh, you know, presumably to, you know, make him a better object example for, you know, the Israelites and stuff. You know, I'm going to make a make a make an object case out of you. You know, mm -hmm. first it says that that he hardened his own heart. And then it says that God hardened his heart. Um, so uh, or we also have the case where we have uh, 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 the, the, a prophet by the name of Balaam, who's he's not really a prophet of God, but he's he's commissioned by one of the foreign kings to curse the Israelites. And so he's on his way to do that. And God sends an angel in his path and, and makes his donkey talk to him and stuff and says, no, -uh -uh, you, you aren't going to do this. And, that, and, and he makes him bless the Israelites instead of curse them. So, you know, so he physically or, you know, blocks him from doing something that he wants to do and makes him do something else instead. Uh, we're also told uh, in the book of Deuteronomy that that as the Israelites were about to enter the promised land, that God placed a fear, a spirit of fear upon the Canaanites mm. in order to make them easier to conquer. Yeah. Right. So, so, so we have lots of ways in which God is, or, 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 or we're also told that God prompted the Persian king Cyrus and put in his his mind the thought to free the Israelites and, and allow them to go back so they could rebuild Jerusalem. Right. Mm. So there's lots of cases where where God will selectively intervene in history to you know either nudge people or even to you know flat out constrain them. Uh, from doing or not doing something, if it you know, matters sufficiently to him. Um, a fifth point, uh, and this will be my last one when it comes to prophecy, uh, mm -hmm. uh, is that a lot of prophecies in scripture that on the surface may seem to be categorical, like this will happen, are actually not categorical, they're conditional, mm. right? Uh, so, uh, probably the, well, so we get uh, a case of this in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 to 10, uh, where we have God speaking. He says, at one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, or destroy it. So he's saying, you know, I might make this categorical uh, or, or uh, might make what seems like a categorical prediction that, you know, I'm going to destroy you all. 
Mm -hmm. uh, however, he says, if that nation I have made an announcement about turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do it. Another time, uh, I announce that I will build and plant a nation or kingdom. However, if it does what is evil in my sight, but not listen to my voice, I will relent concerning the good I'd said I would do it. So, you know, God's saying, you know, a lot of the times what, what God presents as, as though it were a categorical prediction turns out to actually be conditional. God's, God's going to adjust his plans depending on how people respond. You know, uh, he does this in the book of Jonah as well with, with, uh, with the case of the Ninevites. You know, they're told by Jonah, you know, God's going to destroy you in 40 days. The people don't take that as a categorical uh, you know, prediction that can't be changed. They repent. And so God says, okay, you know, the, the planned destruction's off, uh, you know, uh, at least for now. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, the, and the last case I want to mention is the case of Hezekiah, because uh, it's a real clear case. You know, it says in the text, he he's, becomes terminally ill. God tells him through the prophet Nathan that he's about to die and that he will not be healed. Right. It's explicit. Uh, but Hezekiah doesn't take that quite at face value. You know, well, I can't change this. I might as well just roll over and die. Uh, he prays to God and says, God, please, please extend my life. And God hears him, sends Nathan back to him and says, OK, I told you that you weren't going to be healed, that you were going to die. Changed my mind on that. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to give you 15 more years. So it seems that that the initial prophecy to him the, while framed as a categorical prophecy, wasn't intended as a categorical prophecy. It was implicitly conditional. Mm. Uh, and and uh, so there's a lot of cases of that in scripture. Those cases pose no problem for open theism. Uh, so I think while there's a lots of other stuff that scripture says about foreknowledge and prophecy, and we'd have to, you know, to, to fully handle that we'd have to look at a whole bunch of specific cases and a bunch of passages mm -hmm. and stuff and that that would, would take hours and hours and hours and I, I don't have the expertise for that uh, uh, but I think open theists can handle everything scripture has to say in one way or another mm. uh, so anyway yeah that's great um so i appreciate that and then the next kind of objection we can move to is like perfect being theology um so a lot of people would yeah. like to say like god is like a perfect being um and a perfect being would um like have things such as like omniscience or sovereignty um and some people may say well open theism kind of conflicts with that narrative by saying well god actually is an omniscient and there are things kind of like maybe that might occur outside of his control um if like mm -hmm. people he can't like control people's free choices so how would you respond to that kind of objection yeah yeah those 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 objections are extremely common. Uh, I think both of them ultimately are straw men. Uh, uh, you know, well, well, well uh, first, to start with omniscience. Uh, there are some open theists who I think have unwisely uh, framed the position in such a way as to say that God knows all that is knowable while leaving mm -hmm. open that there are some truths about future uh, uh, about the future that simply aren't knowable. Mm. Uh, that way of framing it walks right into this objection because uh, because it says, well, hey, there, there there are truths that 
not even God can know. Well, how then can God be omniscient? At least, yeah. you know, as that's been traditionally understood. Uh, I would say most open theists don't take that line. Okay. Uh, we'll say something like this. We'll say, uh, well, there just isn't any such thing as a complete true story of the future. Insofar as the future is open-ended, the, the shape of the future is yet to be determined, uh, is yet to be decided. Uh, and so there is no fact of the matter about what will happen for God or anyone to know. There just isn't a truth there. Um, uh, there, there, there are truths about what might happen or what might not happen or what maybe probably will happen, but not what uh, uh, truths of the sort that this categorically will happen or categorically will not happen. It's, it's, we're talking the realms of mites and might nots, uh, of possiblies and, and probabilities. Um, uh, so would say it's precisely because the future is genuinely open-ended that God knows it as such. And, and God knows all truths, including the mites and the might nots and the probabilities and the perhapses and stuff. And so God is fully and unqualifiedly omniscient. Uh, there's nothing in open theism requires us to admit that there are truths that God can't or doesn't know. Uh, where we differ from uh, what we may call the non-open or the traditional uh, 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 or the uh, uh, traditional view is not about whether God is omniscient, but about what uh, about the content of God's omniscience. Mm. Okay, uh, mm -hmm. we think that the content of God's omniscience includes a lot of mites and maybes, uh, and doesn't, uh, uh, yeah, and 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 isn't as determinate when it comes to future contingents uh, as, as the, uh, as the traditional view would have it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's very good. Um, the next kind of objection that we'll look at is like maybe open theism is too risky. Oh, did you think you want to add again? I'm sorry. Yeah. You uh, mm -hmm. cause you had mentioned, uh, omniscience and sovereignty. So yeah, I, yeah, I addressed sorry. the omniscience part, but not the sovereignty issue. So mm -hmm. can, can I yeah, 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 yeah. speak can to that a bit? I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. all, all right. So, so a lot, uh, especially of the more of the Calvinist detractors to open theism, uh, charge that amounts to denial of God's sovereignty because it allegedly means that God is not ultimately or fully in control. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you have someone such as R.C. Sproul has famously said in one of his books, uh, uh, you know, with regard to that, just the very idea of, ca of causal indeterminacy in nature. And here we're not even talking about libertarian freedom. Uh, just the fact of there being any kind of indeterminism. Uh, he says, if there is one, uh, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise will ever be fulfilled, mm. says R.C. Sproul. Uh, I think that claim is actually quite extreme and, and perhaps even hyperbolic. Uh, uh, if he's right, then any type of free will theism, any type of Arminian or Molinist view or what have you, denies God's sovereignty mm. uh, because God's not 
you know, you know, in his view, it seems to be theistic determinism or bust. You know, for God to be truly sovereign, he's got to be controlling, ultimately controlling every single thing that happens. God has to micromanage. In response, I would simply ask, well, what if God wants creaturely freedom? What if that's his sovereign will? What if God wants there to be an open-ended future? Can't God sovereignly decide to create a world like that? If so, then free will theism and open theism don't deny God's sovereignty. They affirm it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could agree with Sroll on the fact of the, uh, and the fact of God's sovereignty. Where we differ is on whether God is able to exercise that sovereignty by creating genuinely free creatures. Mm. In denying that God is so able, Sproul ironically opens himself up to the charge of denying God's omnipotence. Uh, so I would say the future is open-ended because God wanted it that way. And it's only as open-ended as God wanted it to be. Uh, and God is smart enough to anticipate and to plan around, uh, all possible creaturely decisions. So there's no chance that God can be caught flat footed or off guard by creaturely freedom. If need be, in fact, he can step in whenever he wants and limit creaturely freedom or channel things in a different direction. Uh, like, for example, he did at the Tower of Babel. You know, he saw, you know, these people were collectively, you know, trying, you know, to build these projects to reach heaven. He said, nah, I don't like where that's going. I'm going to mix up their languages and, you know, mm -hmm. channel things in a different direction here. Yeah. Uh, so he can remain in overall control without needing to micromanage every single thing that happens. Mm. So. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Um, so the next kind of objection we'll look at here is like, what if open theism is too risky? Um, so yeah. some may assert, well, like, well, if God gets all these free creatures and you can't um, force them to go one way or the other, then it seems like, well, it's just possible maybe his, his plan fails and everyone just ends up in hell or most people end up in hell. Um, so how would you respond to this kind of objection that open theism is too risky? Yeah, that that's a good objection, uh, or you know, it's it's a it's one that's good to consider because it's it's a natural one that, that mm -hmm. comes up here, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, so so you know, what if most or even all of God's creatures decide to rebel against God and, and to, you know, say the whole earth goes to hell in a handbasket, so to speak? Mm, yeah. Uh, if open theism is true, so the objection goes, and then God can't isn't even enabled to guarantee that there will be a church or that the gates of hell won't prevail against it at some point because yeah. everybody's going to just turn away. Um, uh, you know, uh, at least you wouldn't be able to guarantee that possibly without oppressively intervening <laughs> to curtail yeah. human freedom. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a worry. Um, mm -hmm. In response, I would say, first of all, this kind of extremely bad outcome, even if possible, is nevertheless extremely unlikely. Mm. You know, uh, God's spirit, as we know, is continually working throughout the world. Uh, He's drawing people unto himself, guiding his church. Uh, uh, so, and and we're told in scripture that you know that that the that the that the power of God is manifest 
to everyone through creation. Mm. We're told that God speaks to us in our hearts, through our conscience. So God is, is not so silent and so hidden that his influence isn't, you know, kind of always there, uh, mm. you know. Uh, and so that creation could go so wildly off course would, would, would be kind of really, really unlikely, uh, yeah. at least on, on the large scale. Um, so I would say um, also uh, as, as the cases such, such as Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, Moses at Sinai, you know, uh, when, when, you know, he sees the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain and they're, and, and they've, they have built the golden calf and God's saying, you know, okay, I, I'm getting angry, you know, and, mm. and uh, he says, you know, I'm about to destroy these people. I'm just going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses mm. as well. No, I'd rather you didn't do that because, you know, that would give all the nations of Israel, you know, like Egypt, you know, a way to say that you just brought these people out here just to kill them. You know, that's, you know, let's not do that. And and God agrees and says, OK, you know, uh, I'll continue working with them. But they're, you know, we're going to have to punish them pretty severely. And, yeah. you know, you know, wander 40 days you know, or, or, or the 40 years in the wilderness and all that. But uh, uh uh, uh, or, or cases, you know, so God, God will intervene when necessary to stop human evil from becoming too rampant, you know, mm. uh, you know, as, as he did, like in case of Noah, you know, you know, that all the, the hearts of people were, 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 you know, only evil continually, you know, except for yeah. Noah and his family, maybe, you know, you know, and, and so God just said, okay, I got to, I have to reset this experiment. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm gonna wipe out the vast majority of humanity and start with this remnant that has been faithful to me. Uh, so God can do that mm. and has done that sort of thing on, you know, as we're told in scripture, uh, to keep yeah. his overall program on track. He's not gonna let things go so off course. Uh, we're told, of course, at the final days that things are going to get progressively worse and worse. Uh, but that, you know, God's going to hold off, uh, you know, to redeem as much as can be redeemed, but that eventually he's, you know, things are going to get so bad. He's going to just say time's up and, you know, we're going to have the final judgment. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so God's going to accomplish his purpose. We can be confident of that. Uh, and one other point here, I should say. Oh yeah, let's say. Uh, it says, uh, you know, God is the one who decides how much freedom we have. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, He can anticipate and plan around every possible decision we could make. So, to, to the extent that there are risks that God is taking in creation. We can be sure that God has weighed those risks. Mm. He knows what they are, and He's judged in His infinite wisdom that they are worth taking. Mm. Uh, that that the, the good of creaturely freedom requires some degree of risk on God's part. At least, if at least it does, uh, if Molinism 
doesn't work, and I argued in our last session that it doesn't, uh, then any kind of creaturely freedom entails some form of risk-taking on God's part. But arguably, such freedom is worth the risk because it makes possible loving two-way relationships among creatures and God and among creatures and, and other creatures. So uh, there are goods that would not be possible without taking the risks. And God is smart enough and has, has, is in control of, of, the law, of the big picture enough to, that, that he can manage those risks to, to an acceptable degree. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, one more, um, we might get to two more depending on time, um, but one more kind of like objection is that like open theism is just too novel of an idea. Um, you look at like most of church tradition, people would say, well, all these people believed in like the foreknowledge of God and they, they weren't open theists. Um, so it's just, it, we, we shouldn't make this radical departure from church tradition. Um, so what are your thoughts there? Yeah, that uh, to my mind is one of, of the strongest objections at least it's the one that worries mm -hmm. me the most yeah uh there's a lot of prof uh, that that the, 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 there are a lot of protestants who, who who don't care at all about church tradition you know just you mm. know just the bible that's all we need yeah. <laughs> but uh as 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 somebody who's who's a recent type of convert to eastern orthodoxy i i i not at liberty to take that line uh, mm. just kind of throw tradition out you know with the bathwater uh, yeah. uh, I uh, you know you know um, the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, you know likes to describe itself as the Church of the seven councils referring to the seven great ec ecumenical councils mm -hmm. starting with the Council of Nicaea and uh, moving up you know several hundred years to, you know uh, before the great schism between East and West. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, and there's lots of indications in scripture that there was, were, were parts of tradition that were hand, handed on from the apostles to, to their descendants and stuff that weren't all, you know, always recorded in scripture. So, so there seems to be even in the Bible a testimony that 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 there's this apostolic deposit that's not wholly contained in Scripture. Even if Scripture is sufficient, it's not. Uh, it it doesn't contain everything that God has. Uh, God would have for us. In fact, the early church didn't even have a complete Scripture for the first yeah. couple of centuries. So, um, I. I so uh, I do want to give a high degree of deference to uh, the church councils, uh, especially the, the ecumenical ones, you know, the, the seven great ecumenical councils. Uh, I don't hold the view that tradition uh, in that sense has equal authority to scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, because scripture, we are specifically told, and, uh, uh, is God breathed, and uh, uh, and you know, we have the scriptural promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That I think implies that we should have a lot of deference to church tradition, especially when when it comes to things that have been believed everywhere, always, and by all. As mm. the saying goes, you, you know, yeah. you know, if there's stuff that that nearly everybody from the early church 
on has has held to be part of the faith as you know the, the deposits you know as part of the apostolic deposit then then we should be very reluctant to to step outside that uh, uh, so you no know, we have this this promise that this gates of hell won't prevail against the church and that scripture does tell us to test all things against scripture and and, and so I think scriptural authority ultimately trumps the rest of tradition, though we should give a, 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 a high degree of deference to tradition. We shouldn't, we should be, you know, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, mm -hmm. We should defer to tradition whenever we can. Mm. Uh, so, so with that said, I would love to be able to say as an open theist, that a majority of the church fathers were clearly on my side. I'd love to be able to say that. Unfortunately, I can't. Uh, uh, I would love to be able to point to an ecumenical council or uh, an ecumenical creed in which open theism was explicitly considered to be within the scope of orthodoxy. Unfortunately, I can't. Uh, that's not just that's just not the way things stand. Um, there is, however, a broad patristic consensus that fallen man possesses moral freedom. Uh, uh, this was contrary to uh, Calvin and the late Augustine, who is really kind of the first person to really introduce this idea of uh, kind of more like general, you know, you know that, that in his fallen state, man was completely incapable of doing good. And then, that was, Augustine's invention, more or less, uh, the early church was almost unanimously of the view that, that, that humans had libertarian freedom, even in their fallen state. Um, uh, so that much is congenial to open theism. Uh, but there also, in the early church, seems to have been a fairly broad consensus that God also had detailed foreknowledge of individual human free choices. That's inconvenient for open theism. Mm. Uh, in my view, though, it, it's not decisive. It's inconvenient, but it's not uh, a, 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 a decisive point against it. Uh, first, I would say, you know, aside from some late uh, 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 conciliar pronouncements in the Roman church, this is after the schism, that explicitly exclude anything like open theism. You have nothing in the, in, in the seven great ecumenical type councils, mm. you know, uh, before yeah. the schism that says anything uh, for or against open theism, mm. you know, or, or, or the idea that God has specific foreknowledge of free will. So it's not something that has been pronounced on in an ecumenical council. Um, uh, the idea that seems to have been popular to the early church had some kind of simple foreknowledge and or timeless knowledge view uh, was, was correct, seems to have been more or less taken for granted by the early church without any real serious discussion or debate about the matter. Uh, so it's not as though the early church consciously and deliberately considered open theism and rejected it. 
they, they really didn't even consider it. Hmm. It just wasn't, wasn't, you know, a live option on the table for them. Um, you know, so amidst like all the controversy about the Trinity and the nature of Christ, you know, the matter wasn't kind of really wasn't on the table for discussion. Uh, second was that even if it had been considered and rejected at some point, while that would be really inconvenient for me, I, I, I don't think that would be itself completely decisive because again, scriptural authority trumps conciliar authority. Mm. Uh, though, though it would likely require open theists to bite a bullet there. Uh, and to, you know, stand outside the mainstream apostolic tradition. Mm. You know, not a comfortable place to be if you put a lot of value on church tradition, mm. as I do. Um, uh, but ultimately, I'm, I'm more committed to, the, to, to truth with a capital T and to following the argument where it leads and I am to the specific deliverances of church councils. Uh, so, uh, so I can take some solace in the fact that open theism was not consciously considered and officially rejected mm. by the early church, uh, even if it does run counter in some respects to prevailing majority opinion among the church fathers. Mm. Uh, so again, you know, that's maybe not a, a you know, it's not as strong and decisive an answer as I would like to be able to give, but that's the best I can do with that one. Mm. Yeah, no, I appreciate your honesty and kind of looking at this important objection. Um, we'll go to one more. Um, that's like classical theism. And we only have about like 10, 15 minutes left. So I know there's a lot here that could be said. Um, so don't feel like you have to get through everything if you yeah. need to be. But like a lot of people will say like, well, open theism will con conflict with classical theism with things like divine simplicity, immutability, impassibility, like actuality, um, or like collapsing like the creator creature distinction, like things like that. Yeah. Um, so how would you kind of approach the idea of like, someone objecting that it can just conflicts with classical theism. All right. Yeah. So, uh, well after the period of the early church, uh, well, you know, starting with people like Augustine and Boethius and then moving on to Anselm and, and Aquinas, it's kind of like the crowning type of figure here in framing what's come to be known as classical theism. Yeah. Uh, it says a, this is a view of God that adds on to just the standard stuff, you know, God created everything ex nihilo and God is uh, omnipotent, uh, is all good, he's all knowing and stuff like that. Uh, he's triune, he's personal, you know, the, the, like standard type of theistic package. They add on a number of other things, uh, such as God is absolutely simple. That God, you know, God is identical to his essence and everything intrinsic to God is essential to God. Hmm. Uh, or that God is pure act. And God cannot be uh, actually affected in any way by by anything outside of Himself. He can't be really affected by by creatures. He doesn't stand in any real relation to creation, uh, or that God is absolutely mutable or or absolutely timeless. Uh, these types of declarations about God's nature were, were derived uh, by drawing on Greek philosophy, particularly Plato and and Aristotle. Mm uh to arrive at a certain con conception of god and and those who hold this view will you know will in insist quite strongly that it, if you don't say these things about god then then you have you know you've got uh you know you have you have uh uh, uh 
have a view that that runs counter to the proper distinction between creator and creature. Your God mm -hmm. is uh, is less than God should be. Um, my response to this, without having time to get into any details, is to say that you know when you look closely at the arguments uh, for these conclusions, they 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 invariably rest on a philosophical assumption uh, that's derived uh, usually, you know, either 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 in most cases in most cases either from Plato or from Aristotle, uh, and that these these assumptions can be rationally denied. We aren't mm -hmm. required to accept it. So I'll give a, a couple quick examples. And I think mm -hmm. that'll probably be all I have time for. So with respect to divine immutability, uh, one line of argument that goes back to Plato was that, well, God can't change in any respect because God is absolutely perfect. And so if God were to change in any respect, it would either be for the better, which is impossible because you know, God can't get any better, or, or for mm -hmm. the worse, which can't, is impossible because God is essentially perfect. And so it can't get any worse. So God can't change. To which I would say, well, why think that all change must be for the better or for the worst? Why can't some change be lateral, so to speak? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, be evaluatively neutral. Uh, if creation is dynamically changing, as open theists believe, and as anyone who, who you know, well, uh, well, you know, as, as I think most of us intuitively believe, then God's knowledge of creation. Ha should should also change to just keep in sync with reality, mm. right? God has to be on top of what's going on, right? Uh, that's not a change for the better. You know, mm. uh, God's knowledge is always perfect. Uh, it's not a change for the worse. It's it, it's the kind of change that you want in a clock that's keeping accurate time. You know, it's yeah. it, it's staying in sync with things. Uh, so so I would say that assumption from Plato, all change must be for the better or the worse. It's just a just a false assumption. It doesn't stand up to close scrutiny. Um, another one uh, to use a case that comes out of Aquinas, uh, his argument for that God must be pure act, mm -hmm. uh, it comes out of his, his argument in the first way, his argument, uh, his first argument for God's existence. And one of the, the assumptions he relies on there is he says, uh, well, he, well, he starts with this example of this log being heated by a fire. And, and he, uh, you know, so the log is in potency with respect to being hot, the fire is in act with respect to being hot and being brought close to the fire, the fire heats the log and actualizes a potency in the log. Mm -hmm. So the, the log undergoes a change as a result of this. Uh, and so, he, uh, and, and so he, he then states this general principle. He says, uh, 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 let me see, uh, let me see what, what uh, anything that is moved or changed, uh, altered, is moved by something else. Mm. And, and he states this as a kind of general principle. Uh, he, he tries in his other uh, uh, of the Summa uh, 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 
like the contra uh, 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 in, in the summa contra gentiles he does offer some arguments on behalf of this principle that he derives straight out of aristotle's physics um but he's generalizing uh, this claim everything is moved has to be moved by something else uh and therefore uh you know we can't he says can't go on to infinity in this and so we have to come to a first unmoved mover and 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 he uses that principle to establish that god must be purely actual uh what is it true that everything moved has to be moved by something else i can think of some counter examples to that think of uh of newtonian uh, of newton's views about motion right you have an object moving in space Hmm. linear motion point to newton the object doesn't need any force acting on it in order to keep moving yeah right so something is being is is moving without being moved by anything else it just keeps on going unless something acts upon it to slow it down or change its motion uh, and the other type of counterexample i would say well how about free will if nothing can be moved unless something else moves it, well then there could be no free will. That principle that Aquinas derives from Aristotelian physics rules out the very possibility of creaturely freedom. Uh, in fact, it rules out, well, 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 I'm, yeah, you know, so, you know, if, if any change in a thing has to be pr produced in that thing by something else, well, then I can't, have a you know affect a change in my own will right mm. by making a free decision between this and that because that would be a change in me that would have to be you know i would need an agent outside of me to cause that which means i'm not a free agent mm. right i'm not the one ultimately responsible for my choices so if you follow this principle through to its logical conclusion you land in a place that i don't think most of us want to be and that gives us i think a reason for questioning that philosophical assumption and once you question that then then the the case for uh god's pure actuality and god's absolute immutability and something like this starts to look a lot weaker hmm. uh, uh, so i think you can 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 uh, uh, and by looking closely at the assumptions that are made in the in the arguments, I think you can dismantle the case for classical theism, uh, at least for those specific attributions. You know, God mm -hmm. absolutely simple, absolutely mutable, God is timeless, and so forth. Uh, I think they all rest on philosophical uh, rest on philosophical assumptions that are not grounded in Scripture and that can be rationally denied. Mm. Yeah, that's really good, Dr. Rhoda. So thank you so much today for coming on. Um, do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you didn't get to say briefly before we wrap things up here? Uh, I don't know. I think I've said my piece for the most part. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, there's a lot, of course, that could be said about this. We could mm -hmm. follow some of the rabbit trails and, yeah. and, uh, and, 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 and talk a lot further about things. Uh, you know, uh, I'll just, I, I guess, close just, you know, I, I, I came to open theism reluctantly, uh, in large part because I was worried about the argument from, argument from, argument from tradition was mm -hmm. 
was the one that weighed heaviest on me. And 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 over the course of 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 about ten years or so, of of the wrestling with the issue, you know, I I, I eventually became convinced that that there wasn't any. Uh, positive response to the problem of freedom and foreknowledge that that was going to work uh, yeah. and so that it was either open theism or theistic determinism uh, is what it came down to is the only remaining options on a plate that seemed to be consistent to me internally consistent and, and theistic determinism wasn't a live option for me really because I think it's just uh, runs headlong into the problem of evil. I, I, I think it makes that problem as bad as it can be. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and so over time, you know, as I've, you know, read from other authors and stuff, I, I've come to a place where I'm sort of at peace with being an open theist, but it took me a while to get there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, you know, so I, can fully sympathize with anyone who's at a different point in that journey. Uh, there's a lot of issues to to weigh through and sift through a lot of scriptures, a, a lot of arguments and things. It's uh, so, but mm -hmm. anyway, uh, God's grace is sufficient for us, and uh, you know whatever the shortcomings in in you know my arguments or. Or you know evaluation of them or or or, or whatever I I, um, I I trust you know he he is uh, he's 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 ultimately in charge. Mm. Yeah, that's so great. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Doctor Roche. It's so it's so interesting to talk to you and think about open theism and all these important things. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. I encourage everyone you can check out Doctor Roche's work and all kinds of great stuff. There's so much great stuff you can check out there. Um, and if you're new to the channel, I always encourage you to subscribe to Adhering Apologetics. Um, leave a like; it's always appreciated. A review if you're listening via podcast. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on Patreon.com/slash Apologetics. Um, support helps a lot to keep the show going. And you can support for as little as a dollar a month. Um, so if you enjoy the show, please consider heading there on your way out. But Dr. Rhoda, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate it, Zach. Thank you. And Take thank care. You, and thank you, everyone who tuned in. Susan, Kelvy, Curity, um, Spartan Theology. Thank you, Jesus. Happy birthday. Um, have a good one, everyone. God bless.